0: from the Kramer Basketball headquarters in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You are listening to the Coach's Edge podcast, powered by Edge.coach. Here is your host, Steve Kramer. Like to welcome back friend of the podcast, Chip Clark to the Coach's Edge uh chip it's been a while but you're our like resident coach's edge (laughs) official coordinator i mean it's almost like we got to get you on the payroll or something for i think this is your second or third fall where you've come in and broken down new rules or points of emphasis so um, this is going to be great i already know it Uh, tell us a little bit of what you've been up to since last time you're on the pod
1: for sure man round three i'm excited brother this is our third chance to do this and Hey, listen, if it, if it keeps adding value to coaches' lives, man, that's what I'm here for. And hopefully uh, hopefully, the coaches that listen to your podcast are able to get something out of this each and every time we do it. Um, so, man, I'm, I'm really excited to be back. It's always great to to talk some shop with you guys and and uh, be able to inform you guys on new rule changes, points of emphasis, stuff like that. Um, it's been a busy offseason for me. And, man, I'm really excited, like most of you guys are, to get back in the swing of things. Um, it's going to be a great season and I, and I hope you guys truly believe that for your teams, for yourselves. Um, I know us officials are, are itching to get back on the court. A lot of us have already started some preseason games and some scrimmages. I know, um, you know, we're coming off a, a summer where I know a lot of you guys were probably active during the summer months and, uh, just like that, you know, we are as well. So, um, you know, finished going to a few, uh, college referee camps this summer, as always do Um, some hiring camps, some uh, staff camps, um, stuff like that, just trying to improve our craft. Like I know you guys are trying to improve yours. Um, So we're itching to get back out there. I did this all season. I've done a lot. And then this past year, I've done a lot with um, an organization called deep dive ref. So I know you've probably seen on uh, Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days. um, A lot of me posting a lot of deep dive ref content, I created all of our summer content our, for our DDR summer series where we kind of did a topical approach, you know, every Monday through Friday of each week um, where I'd post a different play um, with a caption with some training material involved there. Um, so we're just trying to, to – and that was, that was available um, to coaches and referees. You know, anything that can help us all improve or understand the rules a little bit better, um, it was for everybody. So if you guys ever want to go back, it's called Deep Dive Ref um, on Twitter – we posted it on all our social media platforms, but you can go back and see some of the plays that I posted throughout the summer and it can give you some uh, insight into certain rules, but doing a lot with that. We, I do a lot with that during the season too. So um, I'm already starting to record uh training voice or video training, video voiceovers for our training videos that we provide to all of our members throughout the season. We do one a week. Um, so I'm already cranking those out. We, uh, with Deep Diver Ref, we also have some, excuse me, high school associations across the country that uh, partner with us, and and they hire us to do a lot of their evaluations for their officials. So we do a lot of game. I do a lot of game breakdowns throughout the summer. I watch a ton of film, um, not only my own film, but those of our partnering associations. They send film in. We give them solid breakdowns of different things. We'll clip plays for them. We'll highlight certain plays. Give them feedback on their performance on the court. Um, So we can all just get a little bit better. And man, I love doing that too. It's a lot of work, but it's one of those things where I improve every time I get to watch somebody else's film as well. Cause it helps me think about, Hey, what would I do in this situation? Mm -hmm. So, but this has been a busy, busy off season, but uh, man, I'm glad the season's finally around the corner. I think I've got my first regular season college game um, coming up in like a week and a half, maybe. So um, it's right around the corner. I'm pumped and ready to go.
0: This is the season for, for sure. And, uh, you know you're always trying to get better the every coach is always trying to get better and officiating as a whole is always making uh, a change a new point of emphasis because we want this game to be better as well right and so uh, in, our, in our interview today you'll talk about some rule changes you'll also touch on some points of emphasis um, this isn't the same game that we've played a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, even mm-hmm. 10 years ago. It's it's always changing and uh, and, so, and so that's why I like talking uh with you so much is because as officials you're always trying to get better and do a great job of that. So the first one is probably the most common uh rule change that we're familiar with. There's been a lot of chatter about about this one and that's the bonus. So uh, let's dive into that first. Break that down and you know how do you think that's going to, you know, change uh this game uh, throughout the course of the season?
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure most coaches that are listening to this are probably, like you said, familiar already with the new rule change for the bonus. Just to let you know, it mirrors every rule set now, except for men's college basketball, which does not have quarters still. They still do their own thing with two halves instead of four quarters. But every every league in the world that has four quarters now um, now has the bonus rule that NFHS has adopted. Okay, which is on the fifth team foul of a quarter. You're shooting double bonus free throws. And it's not even called double bonus anymore. It's just called bonus, but there is no more one in one free throws anymore. All right. So in high school basketball, on the fifth team foul, all right, that's a bonus situation. So the fifth team foul and above of each quarter, that's a bonus situation. So if there's a common foul that occurs by team A and that's their fifth team foul, then team B will be entitled to two free throws um, anytime there's a common foul. After that, The only time they would shoot any more than two free throws is if they get fouled shooting a three-point attempt that's unsuccessful. So, um, so basically there's no more one and one anymore. The thing I like the most about this rule change is it's also accompanied by the change of every quarter the team fouls reset. And that's great in my opinion. I know there's going to be, I know there's coaches on both sides of this debate, some that like this new rule change and some that wish we still had one and one And believe me, I get it. There is something exciting about in a close game down the stretch, one team's trying to get back into the game. They're trying to foul on intention. You know, they're trying to foul on purpose to send the other team to the line and they miss the front end of a one-and-one and, one and now they can claw their way back into the game. I get it. I get that excitement is not going to be around anymore. However, it seems to work for all the other leagues, NBA, FIBA, NCAA women's. It seems to still have those games still have have a lot of excitement in them down the stretch. And I guarantee you that we're going to still have the same thing here um, I'd love the fact that the team fouls reset at each quarter, though, um, after each quarter. And, and the reason why I love that is, I know there's probably a lot of coaches listening to this right now that, um, man, they could have, they could get in quick foul trouble. And while while foul trouble is not something that a coach would ever be happy about, sp- particularly from a personal foul standpoint, you know, if, if one of their players has three quick um, or early. Um, but from a team foul standpoint, I love it because. You know, there you could be in the bonus in the first quarter, the other team could be in the bonus in the first quarter, but now at the end of that, and and usually what would happen is now we would be shooting bonus free throws the whole in, entire second quarter, all the way through to, the, to halftime, right? But now, under this new rule, team fouls reset. So now you get a front, you get a clean slate at the start of the second period, the third period, so on and so forth, fourth period. And, um, and that's one thing I really like about it because no longer are you going to have those super long halves where. You know, one team is shooting bonus free throws for the whole second quarter, you know, if they get into the bonus early. Um, So, so I like that aspect of it. Um, What are your thoughts on it? Do you, do you like it? Do you not like it? Or, or what's your thoughts?
0: I like it. First off, just off the top, I like the rule change. Um, The biggest reason is the flow of the game, which you mentioned at the end. It's going to improve the flow of the game. Um, Having, you know, when I played, when I played overseas, the flow of the game, it was just a, a smoother flow of the game. The the mm-hmm. reset, uh, how many free throws were, were being taken. Um, teams that are down in the fourth quarter, they can still foul and put the other team to the line. You need to be more selective with who you're fouling, right? Because likelihood you're going to make at least one out of those two free throws for even an average player. So the the flow of the game is, is the biggest one. Um, so that alone to me was worth it. But what I want to ask you, especially for high school basketball, the games are so, so short, right? Internationally, college, you got a 40-minute game, to mm-hmm. a 32-minute game. Do you think that there's a style of play that teams use at the high school level that um, may affect them more than others? This could be offense, defense, or from a skill standpoint?
1: Yeah, as it relates to this rule change? Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, of course. So there's some teams that are super aggressive um, and there's some teams that would like to be aggressive, but they're more or their players aren't as disciplined as other players or other teams. So those teams that are really wanting to push pace or really wanting to get out there and be more physical or more aggressive um, that have been undisciplined in the past. Sure, they don't want to get into uh, foul trouble early from a personal foul standpoint or in certain players. But you can attack more, you can be more aggressive, because you you know that you're not going to be giving up you know, senseless free throws in the whole second quarter, and it's going to reset you know the next quarter. So I think you're going to see some more of those teams be a little bit more aggressive. Um, I do love that it's going to increase the, the flow, the game flow, a little bit. Um, I will say this, though. There's one of the reasons that NFHS gave for this rule change, and I don't know if you guys buy it or not. I'm still on the fence about it. Um, one of the reasons they gave was to reduce physicality. And you may be thinking like, hmm, like, why is that? And it was strictly tied in their words towards um, there was too many free throws being shot that that ended up in rebound situations. So when you have a one in one, you're going to have box outs and physicality on the first free throw because it may or may not go in. You know, then you turn around in that next free throw. You're also going to have physicality. And so they're wanting to reduce the opportunities of increased physicality by limiting the number of free throws that are potentially being attempted every game. And if you do the math, it adds up to where, yep, in an average game, there's going to be less free throws um, occurring with the new rule change versus what the old way was. Um, But I do think, you know, that this is also going to um, back to your point about um, strategy and stuff. I believe that there's going to be teams that, that are more aggressive that if they're playing a better free throw shooting team, are going to probably try to be a little bit more disciplined and dial it back a little bit if they're in a situation where now instead of a one and one, you know, they're having they're getting two free throws. So they're guaranteed to at least, you know, like if, if they're good free throw shooters, they're guaranteed to get at least two free throws and they're probably gonna make one or both, you know. Um, whereas there's no more one since there's no more one and one, there's not that super stress on the first free throw like there used to be in a one and one situation. So I definitely think that coach's strategy is gonna change it a little bit. But I think for the most part, the aggressive teams are still going to be aggressive. Um, the the less disciplined teams are the ones that, <clears throat> that like to sit back in a zone or this, that, and the other um, are still going to be those teams. It's all about your preference and style of play. But at the end of the day, I do think this is going to increase game flow. And I think you're going to see maybe not shorter games, but you're going to see less opportunities for free throws. And I think at the high school level, in my opinion, and maybe this is just demographic, but in my area, I, I don't think we particularly have any outstanding free throw shooting teams in our area. Like, I mean, there there's a few of them, you know, but for the most part, like, you know, the teams don't, they're not excelling at shooting free throws. So, um, or s- successfully, I might add. So I don't know how it's going to change from that aspect, but it's definitely going to change the flow of the game. And for that, I'm excited.
0: If you're a really good free throw shooting team, even more of an advantage to you I, w- I would think um, yep. but as you mentioned those those teams can be hard to find but you know and anytime you can be a lot different than other teams I think there's going to be an advantage there and this rule change I think could um, really show that in a way that it maybe it hasn't before regarding free throws the you mentioned the physicality aspect it was funny I, I was talking to a friend of mine he's been an official for 20 plus years he's like you know <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a. He's like all the games I've refed, I've never had a injury on a free throw. He's like all the injuries that I've had were like movement going towards the basket, right? Yeah, he's, like run so play I, type like, thing. So I don't know, you know what what it is. I mean, it it does recruit reduce some physicality because players aren't going to need a box out on that. I, that's true. I just, um, but that was that was an interesting one because I read that too on one of the bottom kind of sentences as that rule came out. It was like, huh. Well, that's it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and I mean, so what you're seeing more and more now, though, and, and this is what um what they're wanting to get away from, is on those box-out situations, you see a lot of, and maybe it's not injury, but it's increased physicality that could add something into the game that doesn't need to be added. Hmm. So from a physicality standpoint, because as officials, we're not just, I mean, obviously our main priority is to keep the players safe. you know, And obviously we don't have any control of that. Uh, I always chuckle a little bit when, you know, you hear cries out from the stands, like after a hard foul, like ref, you're going to get them hurt out there. Like I wasn't the one who fouled him. You know, like, I, like, maybe you don't think I'm calling the way the game the way you think it should be called, but just because I, I called the foul, what else do you want me to do? <laughs> like I'm mm-hmm. not the one who, who fouled him hard, you know? Right. So, but, but from that standpoint is like hard fouls or, box out situations where you got one player leaning on another person or coaches are still teaching box outs incorrectly where they they teach the inside <clears throat> person who's boxing out to wrap up the player behind them you know I think we've talked about this before but like you know you're not allowed to do that so you're impeding their freedom of movement if they're trying to get around you so you've got grabbing shorts grabbing jerseys you got all that stuff that literally if if one of those players that gets grabs has a temper they could they could retaliate you know so it's not just about injury it's also about what am I allowing in my game that could increase the physicality to a boiling point to where now we're, we've potentially got a fight on our hands down the road? So anytime we can take away some of those instances where increased physicality could present itself in the game, I think that's what the NFHS is looking at, not just from an injury standpoint, but also from increased physicality that could lead to confrontations or um, things on the court that uh, that are not wanted in the game. Does that make yeah.
0: sense? No, that's a great, uh, and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because that absolutely is a situation. Especially as the game's close and things get physical, that uh, those those foul line uh, bumps and conversations tend to amp up. Uh, absolutely. Let's move into throwing spots, Coach. Uh, another rule change here. Uh, talk about you know, what the NFHS has you know tweaked here.
1: All right. So this one might be a little more difficult for coaches to grasp. Um, because it's also going to be difficult for some high school only officials to grasp. All right. So this is why I'm glad that we're able to talk about this on this show. So hopefully most of the coaches that are listening are going to have a firm grasp about it when we finish and can really have a good sense of what's going to be occurring and what strategies to adopt as a result of this um, once the season begins. So let's start with um, the basic principle of this new rule change. All right. So envision a front court throw in that is not based on an out of bounds. All right? So the ball had not gone out of bounds. It's a result of a stoppage in play other than out of bounds. It's invo- it's uh it involves a violation or a foul. All right? Or a stoppage in play where there is this the subsequent action or the resumption of play is going to feature a front court throw in to the team entitled to the throw in. It will be at one of the four designated spots in the front court. Okay, and don't worry, I'm gonna give some examples to break this down so it's gonna be a little easier to understand. All right, but I had to go with the foundation first, all right? Let's let's knock the easiest one out first. If the ball goes out of bounds, let's say that the defense deflects the ball out of bounds. Let's say team B is the defense, okay? Team A has the ball in their front court, team B deflects the ball out of bounds, still in team A's front court, and team A is going to have a throw-in that throw-in is still going to be the same as it was in the past. It's going to be taken from a designated spot nearest to where the ball went out of bounds. Okay. So exactly where the ball went out of bounds, that's where the ensuing throw-in for team A is going to be in their front court. Okay. But let's give some other scenarios. Um, If, if a one has the ball in their front court down deep in the corner. All right. So they're deep in the corner and they're getting trapped. All right. And then B1, at part of the trap, bumps the A1 so where he steps out of bounds or whatever. But the foul is called for B1, all right, who who bumps him, who enters his cylinder and bumps him off his spot and displaces him. So the foul is going to be called. Last year, that throw-in would be from the corner, either on the inline or the sideline, but it would be the one nearest to where the foul occurred. So it would be deep in that corner. Well, NFHS is like, no. We don't, that's a disadvantage for that team who just got fouled. That those corner throw-ins are really tough, you know. So, um, so now, if it was closer to the end line in the corner where he got fouled, that throw-in spot, the subsequent throw-in for Team A in their front court would be three feet outside the nearest lane line on the end line. Okay. So in college, if you if you are familiar with college basketball, we've got a three feet post up mark that's three feet outside the the lane line, the free throw lane line. So that's going to be on either side where if whatever spot is nearest to where the foul occurred, that is one of the four spots that we're going to use um, for the subsequent throw in for Team A. If that was if it was closer to the sideline um, where that foul occurred, then it's going to be put up at the 28 foot mark on the near on that sideline. OK, so it can be deep down in the corner, but think of it this way. And I know it's going to be hard for people to, to picture. But if you draw a diagonal line, an imaginary diagonal line from one elbow of the free throw line or the lane, okay, draw a diagonal line to that corner nearest, you know, that elbow. So from that elbow to the corner, any foul or violation that happens above that line will be, a, uh, and it's going to result in a throw in for the team in their front court. Then that is going to be, that throw in spot is going to be the 28 foot line nearest to where that foul occurred okay if it c- occurs anywhere below that that imaginary line or in the lane or even in the semicircle above the free throw line then that will that ensuing throw in will be taken for the f- team in their front court from the three feet outside the lane line along the end line. okay or uh, on the end line, designated spot right there Same thing on the other end. So both elbows, you draw those diagonal lines to the corners, all right? Anything above that, a foul or violation or a stoppage of play is gonna result in a front court throw-in. It's gonna be taken out at one of those four spots nearest to where that stoppage, violation or foul occurred. Okay, so you're with me so far on that. Now let's go over a couple different scenarios that are gonna be a little challenging for us to grasp until we see it more often, okay? Um, And luckily, Luckily for me, I don't have to change anything because the NFHS adopted the NCAA men's college uh, rule for for these throw in spots and not the NCAA women's, which is different. Okay, so luckily I don't have to change a single thing that I'm doing. Everything is mirrored exactly with the NCAA men's rule. I just can apply it to high school now. But let's go for this example. Let's say a one dribbles into their front court, back court to front court. They, cro- they barely cross the division line. Okay. And they get trapped in that corner just in, in their front court, just inside their front court. They get trapped. A1 can't get the ball out. So he requests and is granted a timeout. When we come, let's say he was table side when that happened. Okay. He's right there in front of the table. He gets trapped in that corner in his front court, requests and is granted a timeout. When we come back out from that timeout, team A's. Throw in is going to be from the designated spot at the 28 foot line table side. Okay, so it's not going to be where it used to be, which is right up there near the division line where he requested the timeout. Now, since that stoppage of play occurred and it results in a front court throw in for Team A, Team A will have the ball at the the 28 foot mark nearest to where that stoppage of play occurred. Does that make sense? <clears throat> All right. Now let's go over this scenario. Back court violation. Team A has the ball in their front court. All right, let's say A1 is dribbling the ball. The ball gets away from him, and it's not deflected by a defender. Let's say he dribbles it off his leg, and it rolls into the backcourt, and then he goes into the backcourt and picks up that ball for a backcourt violation. He's the first to touch it in the backcourt after he was the last to touch it in the frontcourt while it was in team control of his team in the frontcourt. All right, that's the definition of a backcourt violation. So we've got a backcourt violation. Now guess what? Team B is going to be receive a throw-in because of Team A's backcourt violation. But guess where that throw-in's going to be? It's going to be in Team B's front court, all right? Because it was a backcourt violation. So now team B is going to get the ball for a throw-in at the one of those four designated spots because it's going to be a front court throw-in for team B. All right. So they're going to get it at the one of those four spots nearest to where that violation occurred. So let's say the ball had rolled back off his leg, he dribbled it off his foot. It rolls back towards the the bench area, all right. And he he touches that ball in the back court for a back court violation right there in front of the bench. Well, team B's uh, throw in from the front court is going to be the twenty eight foot line nearest to that bench. Does that make sense? And the only other caveat to that is this rule. That on the back court violation, all right. Let's say a one is dribbling in his front court or her front court. And steps on the division line for a backcourt violation. Since they didn't step into their backcourt, so it's a backcourt violation because they stepped on the division line and the division line is part of the backcourt. Okay. So if they stepped on the division line, the division line is literally part of Team A's backcourt and Team B's backcourt. Hmm. Okay. So it would not be, it's not going to be considered a frontcourt throw in here because the division line is part of Team B's backcourt as well. So that's going to be a throw-in from the division line nearest to where the, the backcourt violation occurred, but not one of the those four spots. So if they only step on the if their backcourt violation is only stepping on the division line, it's going to be a division line throw in.
0: Gotcha. But if uh, it's
1: back in the backcourt, it'll be a front court throw in for team B at one of those four spots nearest mm-hmm. where the violation occurred.
0: Gotcha. What are what are any other are there any other violations that would be uh thrown it at the division line or we've come besides that example we've turned it to the 28 foot mark
1: yeah so I mean as far as the division line goes there's not any that okay. I can think of that that would be a division I mean obviously your technical fouls are always going to be the throw in after the free throws are always going to be at the division line opposite the table in high school all right but those are and then obviously to start um, each period with the alternating possession, like after. So we've got the jump ball to start the game and to start any overtime period. Mm-hmm. But for the second, third, and fourth periods, you always start in high school. You always start with the alternating possession throw-in to the team with the arrow at the division line opposite the table. That won't change. That'll stay the same. Um, really, these four spots really only apply to any violation, foul, um, or stoppage of play that results in a front court throw-in for the team entitled to the throw-in. mm mm-hmm last scenario I have to go over. I have to do this because it, there's going to be some confusion on this. You have to do it. Let's I have to, man. I have to. So let's say um let's say team A has the ball in their front court and team B deflects it out of bounds. Still in their front court. Still in team A's team A's front court, okay? So it's out of bounds. So that'll be at the normal spot right like it, that it used to be, right where the ball went out of bounds. That's where we're going to inbound the ball from. Team A will but let's say team A has it over there at that spot where it went out of bounds correctly, and they can't get the ball in. So they request and are granted a timeout. Well, that throw in is a result of out of bounds. So that timeout doesn't move the ball to one of those four spots. When we come back out of the timeout, it's going to stay. The throw-in spot is going to remain where it was before the timeout because it, resu- it resulted from an out of bounds, the ball going out of bounds or a player going out of bounds of the ball. So that's a a big one
0: because that's different than that's different than like NBA,
1: correct? Yeah, exactly. So like if there's
0: that's a big one for us to remember.
1: That's a big one, and so you had to mention that one. Yeah, I did say I had to mention it. So like you know, because I mentioned earlier too that a timeout. Now you got to keep in mind this is a live ball timeout. All right, live ball, and obviously when a thrower has the ball at their disposal for throwing, that's live as well. A live ball on the court, timeout would result in one of those four spots for the designated throw-in from their front court, okay? But if it's their throw-in is a result of an out-of-bounds violation, then, or let's say it's this way, A1, um, A1 ha- is dribbling in their front court, B1 deflects the ball into Team A's backcourt, then A1 can legally go back there and retrieve the ball, right? Let's say while A1's going back to legally retrieve the ball in their backcourt, they accidentally hit the ball out of bounds. Okay, That's going to be a front court throw-in for Team B, but it's going to be at that exact spot that the ball went out of bounds. Okay, And just because it's a front court throw-in doesn't mean every scenario it's a front court throw-in results in one of those four spots being used. But for the most part, other than out of bounds or any throw-in that is a result of an out-of-bounds violation, for the most part, any foul violation um, or stoppage of play is going to be is going to result in that. Now let's say you had a, let's say you had. A, here's a great scenario that somebody brought up to me, yesterday. So team A has the throw in has a throw in in their front court, okay. Team A has a throw in in their front court, um, and and they throw the ball into their back court, okay, but it goes out of bounds in their back court untouched. All right. So it goes out of bounds in their backcourt untouched. So now it's going to be team B's ball from the front court. Right? No. So cuz that's a throw-in violation, all right? It goes back to the original spot because it went out of bounds unto the thrown ball went out of bounds untouched. All right? So it wouldn't be a throw-in from their front court. They team B would get the ball back where team A's original throw-in spot was and they'll throw it in from their backcourt now. Now flip-flop that and let's say A1 is throwing the ball in from their backcourt, okay? And they throw it into their front court out of bounds, unt- it goes out of bounds untouched, All right, So now you've got a situation where that was a violation. It was a live ball violation. They threw the ball into their backcourt. It was not touched at all. So that's a throw-in violation from team A's backcourt. Now team B will get the subsequent throw-in as a result of a violation. And they will have a front court throw-in. So it will go to one of those spots nearest to where the throw-in violation occurred. It's a lot to keep track of. And I promise you, high school coaches listening to this, there's going to be some, there's gonna be some uh you right. know, trial and error type thing. There's gonna be some mistakes made by the officials this year. Talk to them about it. If you know the rule, you know, if you've read up on the rule and you know where the spot should be. Or this, that another, because this goes to the strategy that we were talking about at the start. Coaches are going to develop strategies based on this. Some some coaches or some teams excel on blobs, some teams excel on slobs, you know, like you know, the the sideline out of bounds, the baseline out of bounds, they've got specific plays that they can run. So it's very imperative for us officials to put the ball at the right spot. Well, now you don't have to worry about in those situations I mentioned, now you don't have to worry about a weird throw-in spot. You can focus most of your attention on on designing plays, out-of-bounds plays for the throw-in at one of those four spots, unless the ball went out of bounds, then you inbound it at the spot it went out of bounds. But for the most part, violations, fouls, before the bonus is in effect, and stoppage of play, you can assume that you're, you can, should assume that you're going to be at one of those four spots. Mm-hmm. And now you can build your, you can build your catalog of plays, out, sideline, out-of-bounds, baseline, out-of-bounds, all of those four spots.
0: Right, right. You're right. This is going to be an advantage. Yeah, you know, we talked about free throws. Certain teams are going to find this a, as an advantage. The programs that execute at a high level, running those slops and blobs, they're going to get the opportunity to score even more based on some of these uh rule changes. And so, you know, to again to our to our coaches listening, I mean, that's that's one of the benefits of listening to this podcast, listening to the chip is because you can pick up a nugget or two here and there that Maybe you didn't quite think about oh there's a real change but you know this can affect you know wins and losses in in a close game yep. um, based on you know how well you execute in certain situations whether it's shooting free throws or you know executing on a specific blob, because you end up having you know three four more opportunities from a certain location than one of those awkward deep corner um, inbounds like you mentioned before that can be very big. Coach, mm-hmm. we, I called you coach again. I have the. That's alright. That's. <laughs> your coaching. I, ref, is what I you're answered, doing. I what answered,
1: I answered a ref. That's what I hear. Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I answered a, Hey ref, you suck more than anything else. So I'm, I'm just kidding. dude.
0: <laughs> so last year when we were on, we got worked up would be an understatement. We talked a little bit about bench decorum. Um, yeah. I don't know if you remember, remember that, but we, we both, mm-hmm. there, there's some things that um, we, we'd like to see. This is a, again, a point of emphasis uh, for the 23-24 uh, season, and I, and I don't know, you know, what the point of emphasis is yet, you know, so um, break us down a little bit on NFHS, points of emphasis, bench, bench decorum, 23-24 season.
1: Yep, and so I'm going to try not to go over a lot of the same stuff we went over last year. I want to try to cater it towards this year, and the biggest thing that I want to say here is this. The reason why this continues to be a point of emphasis is because, for whatever reason, officials aren't penalizing bench decorum violations the way they should okay and so i'm gonna i'm gonna get real with with you coaches now okay here's the deal it's on us as officials to penalize bench decorum violations in line with the rules many 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 high school officials are more worried and this is a testament to where like we should not be this way right and this is sad that we are but try to think with me for a second about why maybe some officials are like this maybe there's some officials in high school high school officials that are more worried about the coach's opinion of them than they are actually penalizing these bench decorum violations whether it be a coach being out of their coach's box frequently or coming out onto the court you know even if it's an accident you know or you know all these different types of bench decorum rules um or us telling their their bench personnel to sit down if they're standing during live ball. You know, a lot of coaches get upset about that. You know, well, hey, we need to start penalizing those things. But uh, I I am afraid that there's too many high school officials across the country that are more worried about the coach's opinion of them and they don't want to open a they don't want to open a can of worms because they know that coach may go off on them or this, that, and the other. Or they don't want it to influence the game. They know they will have to give a technical foul if they address this with the coach because the coach is going to get angry or this. It can be a variety of reasons. I just want each of the coaches listening to this to take just like as we have to as officials, take a look inward and see how you can be part of a positive change for this and take a look inward and and ask yourself, is there anything that I'm doing currently that would um, make a, a high school official feel like they can't penalize In accordance with the rules or penalize my team I know there's some states which I don't like this but I know there's some states that do the coaches in the areas the coaches actually have a say in which officials that officiate their games move on for playoff assignments like that so first of all that's ridiculous in my opinion because a lot of the coaches that I know do not know the rules near as well as a lot of the officials that work the game They don't know they it's all it's more so about a popularity contest or this. I have a good relationship with this person or a buddy buddy system. They're not fair arbiters of the rules and they shouldn't be as coaches. You should be looking for every advantage you can get in a game. That's why I I don't know if some of y'all states do this, but in our area. um, Coaches can scratch up to three officials per season Mm -hmm. so they could say literally I don't want this official working my games. For me, I think that's too much power as well, but we have that in place, so we honor that. And guess what? I'm, a, I'm not saying I'm the best official in our area, all right? I'm not even saying I'm a great official, okay? I would like to think that I am. I put a lot of hard work and effort into this, but I end up getting scratched by some teams every year in high school basketball. And I know, whether they want to admit it or not, it's because they know they can't manipulate me.
0: <laughs>
1: I know it. So I don't, I don't take it. I don't get worked up about it at all. I mean, most of my eggs are in the college basket. Anyway, I like to work college games and you know, I, I do high school games when I'm available and stuff like that. And so I don't get too worked up about it. It's not a big deal for me. I know that they're scratching me because they can't manipulate me though. Um, and so, but also down here in the state of Florida, like they don't have any say on my playoff assignments. The coaches don't. So I don't have to worry about, I can penalize according to the rule and call the rules as written, like we're instructed to do. Without fear of them, like scratching me from somebody that they would recommend for a playoff assignment, you know. So, but if you are in one of those states where you have a say in who moves forward and who does not, I'm asking you. I'm not going to beg you. <laughs> I'm asking you to consider giving a recommendation of officials that night in and night out do their best to adhere to the rules, to penalize according to the rules. Yes, are also good game managers that are respectful when they discuss things with you. Cause I know that that, that happens sometimes where we're not on the, we don't, we're not respectful, you know, to the coaches. All right. But instead of making a popularity contest or about who you feel like you can manipulate or this, that, and the other, like I would, I would ask you to please consider um, those officials that try to do the right thing, night in, night out, even if it doesn't benefit your team some nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why these, these points of emphasis have bench decorum points of emphasis keep coming back. Is because coaches are still getting away with it, are still getting away with bench decorum violations. They're still not telling their players, whether you agree with the rule or not, just like us, whether I agree with the rule or not, I have to penalize it. Right. Right. Whether you agree with the rule or not, you have to adhere to it, or you're going to be penalized if you're a coach, you know? So whether you like the rule that says, you know, players may stand, players on the bench may stand, or team members on the bench may stand to, celebrate a outstanding play by their teammate, but then immediately must sit down. Whether you like that rule or not, you still need to make sure that, or have somebody on your bench, one of your assistants, make sure that they immediately sit down after that. And they're not continuing to stand watching the play on the other end of the court or stand while the ball's live right in front of them. You know, like that cannot continue to happen. I mean, we, I, I know we need to, as officials, focus on, making sure that bench decorum rules are followed, but I'm going to be real with you. I'm locked into the game. Mm -hmm. When I'm officiating, I'm locked into the game. I shouldn't, I I don't want to have to keep peeking over to the bench to make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, I want to be locked into the game. And the fact that we keep having these bench decorum points of emphasis means I need to pay a little, I've got to do a better job of it. Admittedly, But when I'm on the court, man, I'm locked into that, my coverage area. I'm locked into that play and I want to get plays right. And there's so many things to be watching for that I hate that we have to do that, but we do, you know, because there are certain rules that we have to adhere to uh, coaches and and bench personnel have to adhere to. And I would, I would recommend that you guys look up NFHS points of emphasis on bench decorum. I'm not going to go through all of the stuff that we went through again last year, again, now, um, but read through it. There's some different things in there read through it, you know, what you are in charge of your bench as a head coach. As a head coach, you are responsible for your bench. If there is a bench technical foul, whether it's on you or not, you are receiving indirectly a technical foul as well. All right. It doesn't come with a penalty of free throws or anything, but anytime one of your assistants gets a direct technical foul or one of your bench personnel, like your team members on the bench, get a technical foul for anything that they do, then that is indirectly charged to the head coach as well. So if you're in an area with a coach's box where you can roam freely in the coach's box, you lose coaching box privileges by rule. Anytime you're indirectly charged with a bench technical foul, Mm -hmm. whether it's on you personally, like directly or not. So, you know, there's like, I would recommend having, you know, kind of putting one of your assistant coaches. If you're one of those coaches that's like me when I'm refing, that's locked in on play, you know, and really don't want to have to worry about your bench. Assign one of your assistant coaches the responsibility of making sure that your bench is doing what they're supposed to do, making sure they're not doing anything unsporting, making sure they're sitting down while the ball is live, making sure, you know, they're not outside of the box, that they don't step onto the court, you know, stuff like that. And even if I know I'm a head coach, if I was a head coach and I know that I'm one of those that gets animated, because I'm sure I would because of my personality, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm sure I would be one of those coaches but if i'm one of those that that likes to step outside the box from time to time um but i'm not aware that i'm doing it have it one of your assistant coaches i mean you see it in college football all the time so you see you him see them all, all the time yeah, you like see them pulling them back <laughs> yeah you sure. see them pulling the head coach back on the sideline or whatever mm-hmm. like you know if just do whatever you can do to make sure you're adhering to that because we are instructed to penalize Unsporting behavior or any any type of violation of bench decorum rules and sometimes we can use a warning for that if it's not egregious but there's some violations of bench decorum rules that are an immediate technical foul so make sure you know what those are if you need to look at look up the point of emphasis that I told you about bench decorum so if you google NFHS basketball 2023-24 points of emphasis then that article will pop up and you'll be able to see that. It's also in your rule book as well, okay? If you do that, great, read up on that, but also go and look at um, rule 10 in the rule book, rule 10, section five. That's the bench technical foul rule. Rule 10, section five. It's right after rule four or section four, which is player technical foul. It's bench technical foul, okay? And look at all the things in there um, that constitute a bench technical foul and make sure that your team is doing their best to avoid picking up any of those penalties.
0: I like it. Thank you very much for, for that breakdown. I mean, integrity goes a long way. And I, I think as, as coaches, as players, as officials, if we can you know, say, Hey, I'm a person of integrity. We have a, a program of, of integrity. Uh, we're more likely to, you know, abide by the rules because as you mentioned, you're not doing something just because you felt like it. You're abiding by the rules as uh, an FHS official, which brings us into our next one on traveling, which I know wasn't one of the ones that you submitted, but because at different levels, uh, there's different things that are legal or, or illegal based on, you know, if you're playing in the NBA compared to playing, you know, a varsity varsity basketball game. So, um, you know, could could you just summarize in short, like some of the differences and traveling violations for a varsity basketball team, this would be a really good one for not only coaches but players to listen to com- compared to a college and even an NBA game.
1: Okay. Yep, for sure. We'll do this. Uh, I, I know you and I discuss traveling um, almost every time we get together because it is one of the most understood rules yes. in, in every rule book. So yes. um, so we'll. I know I don't want to repeat a ton of the stuff we've repeated in the past, but we'll go with this. We'll look at the major differences in traveling rules. The first thing that people need to understand is NBA and FIBA have a gather step slash zero step. Okay. I'm going to give you the fundamentals of what that means. Every Everybody's got a different interpretation of what gather step or zero step means. It simply means this. If a player ends their dribble, which the, um, the NBA titles, the gather, right. Or catches a pass, which is also called the gather in the NBA. Or controls a loose ball, which is also called together in the NBA. If they do any of those, those things, catch in their dribble, catch a pass, or control a loose ball with one foot on the floor, in the NBA and FIBA, that is their gather step slash zero step. And that foot on the floor does not count toward their two allowable steps as a progressing player after the gather. So a player is entitled in NBA and FIBA rules upon in, completion of their dribble, upon ending the dribble or gathering the ball, their dribble, they are allowed two steps after the gather in coming to a stop, passing, or shooting the ball, right? So they have specific rules for progressing players that NFHS and NCAA doesn't have, okay? If you end your dribble with one foot on the floor or catch a pass or control a loose ball with one foot on the floor in the NBA or any FIBA league, That foot on the floor does not count towards your two allowable steps after the gather because it's already on the floor. You're not stepping with it after you gather the ball, right? It's already on the floor. It doesn't count towards your two allowable steps in the NBA and FIBA. So then if you your dribble with one foot on the floor, your right foot, then you're allowed in the NBA and FIBA to step with your left foot and step with your right foot again for step two. So left foot was step one after the gather, right foot was step two after the gather, and then you can launch to shoot. Okay. Or you could get have a gather step, zero step, end it with one foot on the floor, your right foot, step with your left foot, jump off that left foot and land simultaneously on both feet for your second step in the NBA and FIBA. Okay. However, if you do what I just said in NFHS, that is a travel in all of those examples that I just gave. Reason being, we do not have a gather step or a zero step in NFHS. If you injure dribble or get catch a loose or control a loose ball or catch a pass with one foot on the floor, by rule in NFHS, that foot will be your pivot foot when your other foot touches in a step. So if you've caught that pass with the right foot on the floor and then you step with your left foot, you can legally lift that right foot that you caught the ball on because that's going to be your pivot foot now. You can legally lift it, but you cannot start a dribble. You cannot step with that right foot. You have to shoot or pass prior to that right foot, that pivot foot returning to the floor. So when you hear coaches, high school coaches and players and fans in high school games yell, oh, he only took two steps, ref. He only took two steps. Well, I mean, technically, we've said this before, you injure dribble or catch a pass or loose ball with one foot on the floor and then you take two steps in high school, by definition, that's a travel because you've stepped with your pivot foot because your right foot, the foot you controlled the ball on was your pivot foot and you cannot step with your pivot foot. So that's why it's important to know the rules. The only reason I hesitate to bring up NCAA men's on this, I should have said NCAA women's is exactly what I said for high school. Okay. Let's go to the differences for NCAA men. Okay. There's three specific rules. I think we've maybe covered this. There are, there's three, three specific types of plays that now the NCAA men's rules committee two years ago deemed most of them to be legal. They, they've they even told us as officials, men's college officials, to deem them, the, the majority of these plays are legal. That's a step back move. That's a <clears throat> Euro step and a spin move. Okay. Let's go with the spin move first and let's relate it to the high school rule. All right. So the high school rule and the college rule are right, almost identical on this play. However, we've, we've received this new directive in NCAA men's two years ago that most of these are legal high school made it a point of emphasis. And FHS made it a point of emphasis, if you remember like a couple of years ago for spin moves, where when you're turning, if you in that dribble with one foot on the floor and then spin and step with the other foot and then return that pivot foot to the ground during the spin, that's a travel. Well, in NCAA men's, they told us the large majority of those should be deemed as legal. And the rationale they give is because it's very difficult to determine in real time whether the player in their dribble with one foot on the floor or both feet off the floor during the turn. All right, and so they say the rationale is it, it basically it leads to less guessing. They don't want us to guess on plays, so that's why they say if they clearly and they even like highlight it if in NCAA men's if they clearly in their dribble with one foot on the floor that foot will be their pivot foot. All right, but it says clearly and it says if there's any doubt whatsoever that dribbler gets the benefit of the doubt of having made a legal play because it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to determine whether they ended their dribble with one foot on the floor or both feet off the floor. So basically they're essentially just telling us don't call the majority of spin moves travels in college. But if you do the same thing, it will be called a travel in high school. And I'm sure a lot of you coaches can vouch for that Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's a lot of spin move travels called in high school. And guess what? Technically they're right to be called a travel in high school all right i don't like it but again this is a great example of a rule i don't like that it doesn't matter if i like it or not i have to enforce it at the high school level thankfully when i work my men's college games that's one of those that i don't have to be um nitpicky on i can Mm -hmm. give benefit of the doubt on that i don't i can get the elephants not the ants does that make sense (laughs) Yeah. So like the, the high school officials, I mean, they, they get those ants, man. And unfortunately that leads a lot of them to guess on certain plays on violations. I do not guess. I do not want to guess.
0: Right. Well, it's hard like, because especially like a spin move, for example, going up for a shot, you know, there might be six people in the paint, you know, and yeah. you're looking at all these, these different feet and the timing of, okay, when was the dribble ended? And um, you know, it, it's, it's, harder for essentially a a high school coach making a decision on something that's actually essentially you call it more advanced Mm -hmm. with less advanced players pulling trying to pull them off right so I mean that's that's very difficult
1: absolutely and I mean that and even when you talk about those other two types of plays the the men's college uh, rules committee gave us directives on too. the euro step for example okay Use the same principles we just talked about for, for high school, right, for NFHS. If you injure dribble with one foot on the floor and then you euro to the side with your left foot and step with your left foot, that right foot is your pivot. So if you euro back again and step with that right foot, that's a travel. But unless you, in the NCAA men's, unless you clearly and obviously injure dribble with one foot on the floor, then we are not going to call that euro, euro steps a travel. It's got to be clear and obvious to everybody in the building. Like it's one of those where they're like, pretty much don't call it, you know, it's Eurostep. And I'll tell you the big misconception that a lot of people associated with high school basketball apply to um, Eurostep specifically. Here's the misconception. And this is, I mean, there's some people that are adamant about this. They've called me all kinds of names on social media that, that try to make me act like I'm a fool, this, that, and the other I don't care, man. They're the ones that are wrong. So it doesn't matter. Um, but if you injure dribble with your right foot on your floor or on the floor, okay. And so that's going to be your pivot foot. Right. And then you, for a Euro step, you're not going to be able to get your second foot down or your, excuse me, you're not going to be able to get your left foot down on a Euro before your right foot comes up. Right. Just like running for a layup. You know what I mean? You can't, if you're, if you injure dribble for a driving layup while you're running, if you enter dribble on the right foot on the floor, and then you step with your left foot in motion, and then go up to shoot, there's going to be a time where both feet are off the floor for for a split second, right? And long, that no foot touching
0: a, a walking motion where
1: exactly. But they off, they so time. many people on Euro steps for high school basketball try to misapply rule um four, section forty four article three b. Make sure I'm right about that <laughs> before I say that. Article three B. Do what? Oh, yeah. so I out here, I just I just want to I just want to make absolutely sure. I, and I'm I can't believe I'm having a brain fart. Usually this is natural that it comes to me, but it it basically states that if a player after ending their juggle and coming to a stop, if a player jumps, neither foot can return to the floor. Okay, so it's right after three A. This yeah it is three B. I don't know why I'm even looking. Um, it says after coming to a stop and establishing a pivot foot, that's article three, it says that, um, it's in article a three, a is like the pivot foot may be lifted, but not returned to the floor before a pass or a try for goal. And right after that, it says that, um, if a player jumps, neither foot can return to the floor and they're trying to classify a Euro step as a jump. Okay. You injure dribble with the right foot on the floor, and then you kind of do a little launch, but it's a step. It's a euro step. You're stepping around somebody. You're not jumping to shoot. You're not jump jumping off both feet. You're you're pushing off that right foot to sidestep and slip the defender who's in your path, right? And so it's literally a step. Now, if if a high school official told me they called that a travel, because in their opinion, the player jumped. And then a foot return to the floor before releasing the ball. Then I guess I have I would have to say if that's what you think, then yes, it's a travel. If you consider that a jump, but all the high-level officials that I've ever talked to, and me too, this is my opinion, is that is not a jump. It's you can obviously tell if a player's jumping versus stepping.
0: Well, it's the same you motion know? as a as a traditional layup. You just except step horizontal. To the, at a at angle. Angle to avoid Mm -hmm. a defender instead of, you know, stepping straight to the rim. So that, that, that one is is confusing for me to even comprehend because you you can use the exact same footwork, just stepping with an angle, which the, the skills coach in me, you know, looks at, uh, like, if you really want to avoid getting called for a travel on the Euro step, um, like, let's say I'm coming down and instead of dribbling, So the ball hits and my left foot hits at the same time. So it's like dribble. And I just really want to avoid, like I want to make sure there's no way Chip Clark is going to call me for a travel. Yeah. So ball hits, left foot hits the floor. And then traditionally you kind of, maybe a little bit of a more jab with that right foot. And then you'd Euro step back on your left foot and score a layup. Right. We all understand like what, what a Euro step. If you don't want to risk like jab and dribble with the right foot. And I'm telling you this works. Right. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a different timing of the dribble. Right. But there's, so if, if I'm going at you instead of my last dribble hitting with my left foot, say with a right hand dribble, I'll come at you and I'll dribble and I'll jab with my right foot. Boom. So I'm coming to the right. Bang. And then I only step with my left foot to the side and then I lay it up and in. Yep. Easy way for me to not get called for, for a travel on that one and after that jab
1: and after that jab you're able to snatch the ball across as you're going to your rest right yeah you
0: rip it across yep and so for coaches that are like maybe we can train our players like you want to get a change of direction move you want it to still be quick um but maybe you don't feel comfortable teaching a move like this or it it just your kids aren't doing it correctly just have them dribble jab dribble jab then step and lay up that's probably like it easy fix the pro like the other one we were working with some players yesterday on the pro hop. And that's an easy one to get to travel on. So
1: let me ask you, let me ask you, Your like, because here's the thing. Any terms that are used in conversation that are not used as terms in a rule book, always give me pause because it means so many different things to so many different people. So what is your definition of a pro-hop so that I can address it?
0: A jump stop that changes direction.
1: Okay. All right. So give me an example. That's my definition of a pro-hop. All right. I like it. So yeah. give me an example. Is that so, the same as a jump stop, jump stop, just in a different direction?
0: Exactly. Yep. That's okay. it. Yep. Um, but what I think players struggle with because of that change of direction is they'll end their dribble and then they'll change direction. Then they'll jump, which is a travel.
1: Oh, it's so you're very, saying
0: like. Very if- easy to do. It's very easy to travel when you pro hop because it's not, there's a reason they call it the pro hop instead of a jump stop. It's it technically could be the exact same thing but I can get a first grader to jump stop legally, but I'm not good enough to get them to pro hop legally. Right. And even for a high school basketball player working on the pro hop and in their mind, they understand this is just like a jump stop. Same as going in for a one foot layup or stepping to the side, similar to a Euro step. The timing of of that step is different, but it's more complicated, right? You're avoiding, Mm -hmm. you're going at an angle instead of straight to the basket, pro hop and jump stop, same thing.
1: Are you talking about on the pro hop, or they uh, um, kind of turn your body to go through? Like, so when you're you're pushing off that foot, and you're kind of you see it. In my opinion, I see it a lot when somebody's trying to split two defenders.
0: Yeah, that'd be a good example to of when you might when you might use that
1: move. Um, you know, can and the you, only but... thing you got to be careful of is because if I'm understanding what your definition is correctly, is a hop travel you got to be careful of a potential hop travel where the same foot that you ended your dribble on that you launch off of is not the first foot to touch. That and that both, feet, uh, that both feet actually land simultaneously on the quote unquote jump stop, as I would call it. Um, yes. Th- because that would be legal. If, if you push off that foot, you ended your dribble on and then jump through off that foot and land simultaneously on both feet. That's legal at all levels. Right. Right. But if you jump off, let's say you ended your dribble on your right foot, and you try to jump through off that right foot, and then your right foot lands before your left foot does. Yes. Then that's a travel at all levels. Travel, right? So even in the NBA,
0: I'm and so people. glad you meant you mentioned this because, um, which it which I I changed. I don't know how many years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I I changed and said, hey, because for me, I don't want to be the basketball trainer that hey, I went and worked with Coach Kramer. He told me I could do this move, and then you can't do it during season. You know, the coach yeah. is mad, and the you know whatever. I'm 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 always going to veer on safety first, right? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so what we started doing two three years ago was, before we get into a pro hop, we jump off both feet. It's been oh. easier. It's been easier to teach our our kids a little bit of the timing, and to avoid some of that. Okay, I'm jumping off just my right foot. And then my right foot hits again, and then my left foot. Now I traveled. I've I've found that if we teach our kids, okay, we take that last dribble, and we launch ourselves jumping off of both feet. Usually they're a little stronger, and I think especially for the girls that we work with, it's less, um, you know, isolation on a single leg, which may be more likely to have an injury. So if they're pushing off both feet and then landing on both feet, um, not only they're less likely to call for a travel, we're reducing a little bit of injury. And I've, and I found that depending if we can adjust the angle of how they jump off of two feet, they're actually better at changing direction as well. And be oh, yeah. under control compared to, I mean, you, you try to run, jump off one foot, change direction, lay it on two. Like it's oh yeah everybody.
1: Yeah. Um, so now the, I the love key point and
0: inter, inter, intertwine some player development and and some rules. No,
1: that's, that's perfect. And I love it because I love hearing the player development side. And things that a coach like you are working on with your team, and then I'm able to ask you a question like this. You know, like when you teach them to jump off two feet after they pound that dribble, you're you're making sure they're jumping off both of those feet before they end their dribble correctly. Are correct?
0: Yes, and that's one of the reasons I brought Good. up the point because it is so hard to teach that. Yes, so hard, to very hard. And we're work we're working on it yesterday. We were working on it the the week before. And that was one of my main points of emphasis because it is so easy to pro hop and your dribble with both feet or a foot on the ground, then jump land. Even that's, that's, the feet, more, that's, that's the more,
1: that's the more natural, that's the more natural and gather, that's what's tough then is then like jump. yeah, yes. gather and then jump. So, so the, the unnatural is the hardest always, right? Yeah. Because it's unnatural. Yeah. And so, but it's also in many cases, just like this case we're talking about the most effective because it's, not as expected by the defense. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you're able to literally teach a group of young people to pound the dribble, but before you injure dribble is when you launch to the side off of both feet, then you injure dribble while you're in the air with both feet off the floor. And then you can land left, right, or right, left, Mm -hmm. or both feet simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And if you left, if you, if you ended your dribble with both feet off the floor, and landed simultaneously on both feet, either foot could be the pivot foot. So now you have pivot options out of that. Mm-hmm. So the the jump- On of- every <laughs> level, on every level too, high school as well.
0: So the jumping off two feet helps this, mm-hmm. helps our players, but it's still, which which is why I'm trying to get them to say, hey, when you take that last dribble, I say it's a, it's a dent in the floor. This is a mm-hmm. dent in the floor type of last dribble because if you baby dribble that ball- you're going to want to help that ball get back up. You're going to put your hand underneath or you're going to want to put two hands on it and you're not off the floor yet and into your change of direction. So you you're traveling, you're going to travel. Absolutely. Yep. you got a dent in the floor of that dribble and work on changing direction without ending your dribble. So hand on top or on side of the ball. When I'm in the air, now you can put two hands on, right? You yeah. put hands on when you're in the air, boom, be strong turn your body turn your shoulder protect the ball and then you know you can go up pass fake shot fake as you said pivot all those different things yet
1: yeah. you're teaching I, it perfectly
0: i don't i'll be honest though i don't teach them to pivot off of it because i'm too scared that they're going to get called for a travel still
1: i don't blame you i don't blame you especially uh, at the high school level. Said, I'm,
0: I'm thinking safe like i and and even during it's a shame time, it's a like, shame that we even... go hop here and then you could pivot but we're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to teach it to you today because it's just, it's covering a lot of ground legally mm-hmm. that, I mean, if it looks funny, a lot of, a lot of, as and I said, well, when you're in the paint. Yeah. When you're in the paint, if something looks awkward and there's six different bodies in there, there's hands flying all over the place, you know, and and, and for, for good or bad. I mean, if, if you're a smooth player, I mean, you're more likely to get the benefit of the doubt sometimes, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe you did travel. Well, yeah, and here's the thing is like we'll just call it how we see it. I, right and this is not a bash on not a bash on my colleagues at the high school level. But there's still quite a few high school officials that think, and it's a shame, that think anytime you land on two feet simultaneously with holding the ball, that you cannot pivot out of that under any circumstances. That's what they think. Not even taking into account when the end of the dribble occurred or when the catch of the pass or control of the loose ball occurred, which is the most important part, which you and I have talked about at length in past episodes. So then you see them in the dribble with both feet off the floor and then they land on simultaneously where by definition, either foot can be the pivot foot. And then if they pivoted after that, a a unfortunately large majority of high school officials will probably call that a travel. And that's that's. Unfortunate, it's not the word it's sad. It's just really sad. That's sad. Um, yeah. Because it is legal.
0: Yeah. It's legal. I mean, we could talk again. I'm getting, my face is getting redder. Guys, I know,
1: right? <laughs> you know, because I'm thinking
0: of, because there's things I would like to teach that I'm like, I just, I'm not, I can't teach. I'm not going to. I don't teach. feel comfortable. Um, but the pivot thing is even funny because like a kid could get thrown the ball in the backcourt, jump in the air, both feet land at the same time.
1: And then pivot, and nobody yeah, would blink and an and eye.
0: Nobody's nobody's calling travel on that. Nobody nobody to the and then I jump stop, and then I pivot. Okay, a lot of them are. Some are going to call travel, especially if you a, covered a lot of ground. I pro hop, Should I go and I pro hop, and then I pivot. Yeah, sure, shooting. I'm getting called for a travel on that. <laughs> I mean, you bet. You know about me,
1: bro? Not by me. I mean, so not by me. It's it's just it's very important. Here's the thing I want to to Last thing I, fin- I want to make it about because
0: we got we got about fifteen minutes. And yeah, we got, the last point I want to make oh, on oh, this play. Oh, so and this is so good. This is so good. Yeah. We could keep going. This is great.
1: I know, man. I know. So we've got a uh, that you said in a crowded space, like in the lane. All right. You know how it's it's way more difficult to see. You know, and this, that, and the other. Unfortunately, there's a lot of officials at the high school level that would guess on those. If there's a lot of congestion around, the high level officials do not guess. So like it's one of those things where we've got to be sure that a traveling violation has co- been committed for us to call a travel. Because I don't want to take a possession away from a team where there's not a where there's not a hundred percent chance that I'm right. You know what I mean? Or at least a high level percent percentage chance that I'm right. When it comes to violations like travels or or illegal dribbles, like double dribbles or stuff like that, unless you're sure don't call. you shouldn't blow. Yeah. And that's why we even teach, you know, at the collegiate level, which I wish you know, and high school is doing a little bit better job in their new officials manual. And, and there's still a lot of holes, which I, I wish I could help rework the whole manual, but um there's, they're, they're doing a better job now of plays that are curling away from you, like pass that play off and and receive it. If you're the official that it's curling to. So if, if I'm, if the ball's being dribbled in the trail position or right in the trails coverage area, you know, and the trail is the official that's farthest back on the strong side, there's a lead down there on the base end line and trail's up here. So if I've got that right here and that dribble dribbler is starting to move away from me towards the center, who's at the free throw line extended on the other side and it's curl, it plays curling towards the center and away from me. And I'm looking at the backside of the dribbler. How can I be sure that a double dribble violation has occurred or an illegal dribble in high school? You know, I can't even see the ball. So I need to rely on my center official there to pick up any, illegal dribble violation or even a potential travel because I cannot see Mm -hmm. when he ended his dribble and if I can't see when he ended his dribble I'm not calling a travel I'm just not now does that mean that I'm going to miss some travels that actually occur and incorrectly no call them absolutely probably going to happen I try not to but because I am not going to guess I'm not going to be the reason that a team turned the ball over unless it's warranted that's my goal because of that, I'm not going to guess, and I'm going to rely on our team officiating to get this right and, and rely on my partner who the play is curling towards. If I can't see the, and that, and that also means I'm going to be fighting for position and position adjusting to try to find open angles and keep open angles so that I can see exactly when the dribble ended and then officiate the footwork. But we've got to go, we've got a lot farther to go in NFHS and high school level among high school officials to make sure that they're looking at the right things, their eyes are in the right place. Eye transfer is going where it should be transferring from this to this from defender to ball handler, to feet, to back to defender, whatever. We've got to make sure that our, our, trans transfer is exactly Mm -hmm. where it needs to be and make sure that we're not guessing on plays and for any other travel rule differences or, or anything like that. Like you can always go and find, um, if you've got a high school rule book, you can see, I think there's a section in the rule book um, for the NFHS rule book near the end that shows major officiating differences between men's and women's college basketball and NFHS. So it's going to give you a bunch of different, right. so if there's things you're seeing in the college game that you want to implement, just check that rules differences list, major officiating differences or rules differences between NCAA women's and men's and then high school. And that'll be able to tell you kind of, hey, this this in men's is a technical foul. It's only one free throw because it's class B. It's given the throw in is at the point of interruption to the team that was entitled to the ball or the, the team that had control of the ball at that time. But in high school, if there's a technical foul, it's two shots in the ball at the division line for the offended team. Just different things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're gonna help you. And traveling is one of those as well.
0: So to our coaches, it's better to be safe than sorry. So check the check the rules. I mean, it's like my wife tells me she tells you when we we're driving in the car, she said You're driving too slow. You're driving too slow. I said, I'm not a slow driver, I'm cautious. I like I've it. been driving 20 plus years. I never had a speeding ticket chip. There you go, baby. There's a difference. And to our referees, as chip said, I I'd put it on shirt If you don't know, don't blow. That's right. Put that if on. You t- don't
1: show don't blow. That's what we say all the time. man. There
0: we go. There we go. Uh, a couple other uh, quick hitters here on uniforms, points of emphasis on uniforms. What's up this year with that?
1: All right. I'm not going to say much about this. Cause I need you coaches to do me a favor. Okay. Here's the thing. And I, I've told all the coaches in our area, the high school coaches, they seem like at least one or two or three teams seem to get new uniforms every year, or every other year. Find somebody for you high school coaches out there. If you're looking to get new uniforms, find an official in your local area or the coordinator of officials or whatever that you can trust who knows the rules. And if you got like. We'll be happy to do this. I've already told my high school teams in the area, I'm happy to do this. Reach out to me if you're looking at a if you've got designs for a new uniform you're looking to get before you place that order, reach out to me and make sure that they're legal. I've even done that. Now I don't have to do that. So what I'm gonna say is this, read the rule book on uniforms. what is legal and what is an illegal uniform, All right? You can find that in rule three, section four under uniforms, okay? Rule three, rule three,
0: section four.
1: Yeah, exactly. Rule three, section four, it talks about the numbers, where they need to be on the jersey, what you can have as far as colors um, for the numbers, the border around the numbers. It's all this tedious stuff that coaches never want to do. And guess what? I'm an official. I don't even want to read that rule anymore. Mm -hmm. I've read it like seven times for the last seven years, every year, you know, just to you know refresh on any new updates that they have. And I'm sick and tired of it. It's, It's annoying rule to read, but they have rules for a reason. Okay. And so all I'm going to say, I'm not even going to tell you what the rule changes are. I'm not even going to tell you what the new rule, ch- I'll tell you one, that now the visiting team who has to wear dark colored uniforms, right? The visiting team in high school that has to wear dark colored uniforms. Now they do not have to, they do not have to wear only an undershirt that is the same or similar color to the torso of their uniform. That is one of their options but now the visiting team can all wear black undershirts so if you got a dark green if you got a dark green you can now wear a black undershirt but everyone on the team that wears an undershirt has to have black so they all have to coordinate for all the undershirts right but now it no longer has to, so if you were a till if your visiting color was like till you don't have to search for a till undershirt anymore you can tell your um you can tell your players they can all wear black undershirts now I like, you it. know, so, so that one Carolina helps.
0: to Carolina, yeah. Teal, Teal Nation. Um, exactly.
1: Myrtle <laughs> I, I like So, it. yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, read the rules. Um, But listen, before you order uniforms, I mean, inevitably, a coach never reaches out to me when they get new uniforms. Then I have one of their games. And then they've got the numbers off to the side or, like, you know, the logo up here in the corner on the chest or the, the numbers that are down lower that are not centered. And we have to start the game with a daggum technical foul, you know, and it's charged directly to the coach. So you have to, you lose your coaching box privilege for the rest of the game, you know? So make sure that you're brushed up on uniform rules, apparel rules, all that stuff. You can find it on that point of emphasis, NFHS points of emphasis in Google, you know, Google that, read the new points of emphasis or rule changes and, and be brushed up on those because I've told you this before, refs hate being the uniform police. I can't stand it, but we got to do it. All right. There's nothing I dislike more than having to go tell somebody or tell a coach, hey, number 22 has the wrong color undershirt on. If they want to participate, they can't wear that. Yeah. You know, they can't even participate in warmups with that shirt on. It's the wrong color undershirt. You know, I hate that stuff. So if you guys can take care of it ahead of time, even before the season, and then maybe assign one of your assistant coaches to check with all your team members before y'all get on the bus to go on a road trip you know, to make sure they have their tights are matching or their, you know, their undershirts are matching or, you know, all this type stuff and that the uniforms are, are correct and legal, man, that would be great. That'd be a great help, not only to us, but to you guys. So you don't get penalized for illegal uniforms.
0: All right, Chip, four minutes left. I got to go pick up my kids from school. New rule for out of bounds for leaving the court and a new rule for correcting mistake on a throw into a wrong team.
1: Too easy, too easy. All right, here we go. Two minutes each. All right, so out-of-bounds rule used to be in high school. If you leave the court for an unauthorized reason, it's an immediate violation. So let's say there's a double screen on the baseline, and you're trying to go around as an offensive player, your players who are setting that screen, and you run out of bounds on your own volition. It used to be an immediate violation on that player who ran out of bounds, whether they had the ball or not. Now that is no longer the case. It mirrors the NCAA men's rule where you just cannot be the first to touch the ball after you return inbounds. So you can run out of bounds around that double screen. And that defender can follow you or whatever. You can run out of bounds and then come right back into the court and reestablish on the court, which by the way, it doesn't have to be two feet. It can be one foot with nothing touching out of bounds to reestablish inbounds, all right? Um, but if you return inbounds and, you're, and you are the first to receive the ball or the first to touch the ball, that is when it becomes a violation. So just like the men's college rule, you run out of bounds on your own volition or voluntarily. um, That's fine. It's no longer an immediate violation. But when you step back in, if you were the first to touch or receive the ball, so if you receive a pass from A1 and you're A2, you've already stepped out of bounds, you're in bounds now, and you immediately receive a pass from A1 right after you return in bounds, That's a violation. Okay, second one. If I, as an official, which this should never happen, we're telling the officials this should never happen. You've got to survey the floor, make sure everything's right. If team A is entitled to a throw-in, but I accidentally award the throw-in to team B and team B throws the ball in, used to, the rule was you cannot correct that mistake as soon as the throw-in ends. So, and the throw-in ends when the ball is legally touched inbounds, okay? So, as soon as somebody caught that ball or touched that ball in bounds, that was a throw-in ball, then I can't be like, oh crap! I was supposed to give it to Team B, and then give it to them. I can't do that anymore. That's what the old rule used to be. Okay, now I can correct that mistake all the way up until the first dead ball. So if I've administered the throw into Team A, and it was supposed to be Team B who was um, awarded that throw in, Team A throws the ball in. They dribble around for ten seconds. They dribble around for fifteen seconds. They're going in for a layup. And then I'm before they shoot that layup, I'm like, oh crap, I gave it to the wrong team. Boop. I can blow the whistle. I can bring the ball back to where the original spot was, award it to the proper team. And this is the crazy part. And now I can put the time that expired from that those 15 seconds they were dribbling around back onto the clock. So whatever the clock was at before that original throw-in when team A you know, threw it in and it was not them entitled to it, when they threw that ball in, like it, let's say it was at 335, and now it's at, at 320, when I blew that whistle, I can put 335 back on the clock, give the the throw in or administer the throw in to team B and correct that mistake before the first dead ball, unless there's a change of possession. So if A threw the ball in, it was the wrong team, they caught the ball, and then a, A2 threw the ball, passed the ball to A3, and B1 intercepted it and starts to go on a fast break, we're not stopping that. Then we're letting them go on for their fast break. Or if there's a change of possession in any way, we're by rule we can't turn it over then and put it back to that spot for them. So,
0: gotcha, Chip. This was awesome. This was awesome. This this was fantastic. You you did it four minutes. I, think <laughs> I tried three minutes and forty um, some seconds. I think uh, is that
1: real? Because usually I go way over time allotted or maybe it was 4
0: minutes and 40 some seconds. Oh man, let's just call it 340. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll put I'll put chips uh social media, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. I'll put his links up there. You can reach out to him. He's a great follow on, on Twitter. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. This was excellent as always.
1: Man, I really enjoyed it. It's always great to see you, brother. Hey, go pick, go pick up the kid and uh thanks again, man. I look forward to seeing you again next year.
0: We'll do. Sounds good to all the listeners. Appreciate you. Get after today.